You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. So, uh, that was great, guys. How, how good to worship, to sort of be stripped back, just to be the church and um, me and Mark were saying it feels sort of vulnerable in a, in a weird way to, to turn up because we're so used to church being well I, I don't know I guess just all the stuff that we do and when it changes a little bit we all feel a bit wobbly don't we but great so good to be able to just come and to come ready to pray to build us all up and to receive from God. So uh, that continues now with the Word of God. Uh, the Scriptures are breathed out, Ruach, the breathed out Word of God. It could say that it's breathed into or that God breathes out from it. Uh, it however you take it, it is, Scripture is a breath of God thing and breath is something that comes with words. You can't utter words without breath. And so as we hear the scriptures and this sermon is a sharing and a participation in God's speech to us, then expect the breath of God to breathe new life, new hope, new riches from him into the depths of your soul, right? That's what's going on. Please don't hear this as just an information piece, a lecture. You've got to be open for the breath. Pay attention for the breath. Be alert to the breath of God through the scriptures. So Rob mentioned at the beginning that we're in this 100 days of prayer. Um, 17 days in, is it? Okay. Uh, and, and as we've been working through, as we've been in the 100 days of prayer, we've kicked off in our Sundays with the Lord's Prayer. That's the, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And we've been using the version that's found in Matthew's Gospel primarily. We've borrowed from Tom Wright's. Um, the translation of the text uh, this week is uh, it's not well it's only a short phrase but it's, it's not really Tom Wright it's just a short phrase that we're going to be looking at but we've got to the first petition the first actual request in the Lord's Prayer we're three weeks in and this is the first request I thought it was a prayer though I thought it was all about asking well actually no it all begins with worship and this week we get to a request we're going to be looking at give us this day our daily bread. And it's good to remind ourselves before we get into exploring what that means, it's good to remind ourselves that it belongs, the request belongs in the context of a praying community that is focused on the honour of God and the priority of his kingdom. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honoured Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, and then give us this day our daily bread. You know, in Matthew 8, Jesus will go on to say, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, but seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. So even there, the priority, seek God kingdom. Don't fret about eating, drinking, stuff. Seek God first. Now broadly speaking, there have been two ways that this request have been interpreted by the church down through the centuries. And I want to give a little bit of space to each one this morning because they're both 
valid. And really and truly, just to give you a spoiler, they both really belong together. But let's start off by thinking about this. The kingdom, uh, the daily bread as a longing for the kingdom. Daily bread as longing for the kingdom. Because the Lord's prayer looks forward to the full coming of the kingdom of God, this petition for daily bread has been interpreted by the church as a symbol of need being met on a global scale. Okay? Because the kingdom is here and is coming, because the kingdom is anticipated as well as just enjoyed, because there is a day when Christ will come and all things will be made new, this prayer kind of looks forward to that day and anticipates the day when all will be fed, all will be nourished, when need is suddenly zeroed, where there isn't any more need, where there is no more hunger, where there is no more poverty, where everyone has enough and Christ is all in all. It looks forward towards that. Now to help us get our heads around this, maybe you have heard the biblical story from the book of Exodus of God providing bread called manna from heaven for his people in the wilderness. God rescued the Israelites from slavery. He led them through the wilderness. He provided bread for them from heaven. And there was an expectation in Jesus' day among some of his contemporaries, some of the Jews of Jesus' time, thought that when God sent his king, when God sent the kingdom of God to rescue and to restore his people, then manna from heaven, bread from heaven, would appear again. God would do this miraculous provision of bread all over again, and God would send his king and restore his people, and that there would be a great banquet, an epic dinner party for the people of God with divinely given artisan loaves. Sounds pretty good, provided by Haxby Bakers. Maybe not Haxby Bakers. So when Jesus appeared on the scene, speaking about the kingdom of God, performing signs and wonders, the expectations were sky high. Is this the moment? When Jesus then fed the 5,000, this was a sign of the presence of the king and his kingdom, the abundance, bread from heaven. It was God in the flesh feeding the people of Israel in the wilderness. The king is here, and the kingdom is here with the king. But then the same Jesus on a separate occasion also fed 4,000 non-Jews, hinting at, well, actually more than hinting at, it's 4,000 people, hinting that the kingdom of God was good news for all peoples. But this hope and expectation of what God would do, sending his king to restore, to renew, providing, feeding, that it wasn't just for a small group, a nation, but it was for the whole world. And so the feeding of 4,000 and the feeding of 5,000 show us the king and the kingdom and the hope of the kingdom and that it is wider and broader than one group, that it encompasses all peoples. Jesus, throughout his ministry, ate and drank with all sorts of people, the right kind of people and the wrong kind of people, the righteous and the sinners. 
And it's all a sign and a symbol of the kingdom. One of the great longings and expectations that goes along with the desire for the kingdom is that there would be something called a messianic banquet, that God will gather peoples to a feast in the age to come. And what we see in Jesus is that very thing happening, but right now, if you like, and with all kinds of people. The king had come, and the kingdom was present with the king, and it was all very good news, but it didn't necessarily look like good news for some of the folk who assumed that it was all just for them and for nobody else. So what does it mean then for us as a church to take this request, this prayer, give us today our daily bread? What does it mean, taking into account what I've just said about the, the way that this has been understood, how do we, what do we do with it? Well, I guess in essence it means that we are praying for the fullness of the kingdom to come not just amongst us, but we're looking for that day when Christ appears. We're looking for the day when all things are made new. We're praying for the completion of what began in the words, works, and person of Jesus. And we're also confessing that the power to change the world does not reside with us or in us, but with the King. We're longing for the king to come. He is the one who will make all things new. He is the one who will put all things to rights. He is the only hope for the world. And so the church longs for the king to come with the fullness of his kingdom. But as we pray that, it implicates us. It draws us into the story there's a challenge here for all of us who pray this prayer. How far are we prepared to go in perhaps willingly redistributing what we have as a sign that we are indeed subjects of a coming kingdom? This big picture, broader way of understanding what daily bread might refer to calls each of us out when we ask for it. Because our asking for this bread cannot simply be bread for me alone. It is a longing for the bread that will nourish all peoples everywhere, fully and eternally. And so the prayer, give us today our daily bread, is a big picture prayer that is a longing for the kingdom to come in its fullness. Now there's number one, that's the first main sort of big picture way that the church has understood and interpreted the request for daily bread. Here's the second, daily bread as daily sustenance. Now you can breathe a sigh of relief. This is the easy one. This is the one that we all pray frequently, or is it? Well, let's find out. The natural meaning of the request, at least as English readers and speakers is give us what we need today, please, God. That's the natural, if you like, the plain reading of the text, and that's perfectly all right. 
But there are some things in the Greek of this text that make it a little bit more complex. Right? And all English translations of the Bible often have to wrestle with complications in the Greek language. Some do a good job, and they're the Bible translations that feel a bit clunky when you read, because they kind of go, yeah, hands up, it's difficult. Some kind of fudge it to make it a little bit more readable and accessible for Western people who think that everything should be easy, like God. Uh, and so let's make it really easy. Uh, so here, here's a little interesting but slightly complex thing. The word translated daily only shows up once in the Bible, and it's there in Matthew. That word translated, the Greek word translated daily, is only there once. The only other occurrence of the word, the Greek word, in kind of classical literature is in an ancient text of which the sentence has been chopped in half, so you, don't really, you can't really tell what it actually says. <laughs> now that's quite a big deal, and that's quite important, isn't it, for understanding, well, what are we talking about then when we talk about give us this day, our daily bread, if it's such a rare word. Now, thankfully, scholars have spent more time on this than I have and more time on it than any of you probably will, and that's probably quite good because we have lives. Um, and scholars have lives too, but their lives are in the service of us, which is really, really good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, the best evidence in scholarship points towards... Okay, hang on, wait, go back a little bit. I didn't tell you. Here's a, here's a range of meanings. Okay? Scholars think it could mean... Daily could mean, like, literally, daily. Uh, it could mean necessary. It could mean continual. It can mean for today, and it can mean for tomorrow. None of those are exactly the same, are they? Like daily. <laughs> oh, so what do you do? Well, the best evidence points towards taking it as for tomorrow. Now that's fascinating. What does that do to our interpretation of this request? Well, it turns it into this, give us this day our bread for tomorrow. I mean, it's abhorrent to the French, for starters. Like, you don't have tomorrow, every day is fresh bread, don't give us today, well, ugh, it's disgusting. <laughs> but if it seems a bit bizarre, it is a little bit strange, Consider that the first century world, the Pal first century Palestinian laborers got paid at the end of the working day for whatever labor had been accomplished that day. And so what you get paid for at the end of the day is the money that will pay for your bread tomorrow. Okay? Now also consider that the going rate was pretty poor. Minimum wage was Minimum, minimum, minimum wage. So to pray, give us this day our bread for tomorrow, could mean give us what we need today to put food on the table tomorrow, if we pray in the morning, perhaps. And if we pray in the evening, perhaps we're saying, please let there be enough work tomorrow in order that I can feed my family the day after. The prayer looks forward and forward and forward. The language of the request places the immediate needs of the day in God's hands and simultaneously entrusts tomorrow's needs into his care. 
But, 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 uh, 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 wait, somebody might say. <laughs> Me. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 8, and you read from it, Al, that you shouldn't be anxious about tomorrow? Doesn't Jesus contradict himself then? Well, the point of asking God for what you need tomorrow is that you put your anxiety to death by trusting him today. <laughs> okay? Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Give it to him today. Entrust yourself to him today because he will provide for you tomorrow. For the majority of us here, there really isn't the same sense of living on the edge of going hungry, though, is there? I really don't think there is. Perhaps, like me, you felt on occasions embarrassed about praying for daily bread. I mean, I don't honestly think I can ever recall ever a time in my life when there was literally no food in the house. You know, although as a teenager, I probably said, Mama, come, there's literally no food in the house, which is literally not true, ever. And even if there was no bread, like, you know, no bread, well, I, there's about four or five supermarkets within five minutes' drive and an artisan bakery in Haxby. It sounds like I'm on commission in Haxby Bakers, I'm not. <laughs> And we've got a bread maker. I still a lot of it. I mean, it's, like it's, the most, it's the most middle class thing you can own, isn't it? A bread maker. It's like, you know, there's no kind of give us this day our daily bread, yeast, water, pack it, mix it up, shut the lid. Thanks. <laughs> there's not a lot of anxiety ever in our household over the absence of bread. <laughs> Now, while we can certainly talk about this prayer as a request for actual bread, I think that it can be stretched and interpreted towards the kind of things that are the cause of anxiety for us in our slightly richer, more abundant Western life as well. God knows us. He knows the times and the seasons, the places where he's caused us to be. He knows the particular pressures that we live under and with. He knows the angst of only being able to buy like a lower quality loaf when you go to the bakery. He knows what it feels. He knows these things. He knows where we are. He knows energy prices are soaring. He knows there are big question marks over food prices. And when we pray these things, we get to trust him equally as much with all of our lives as we might do if we were a first century subsistence farmer praying for tomorrow's work to provide enough in order to keep putting food on the table. In a sense, you know, praying, it, praying this request brings us as a church into solidarity with the poor of the world because Ultimately, everything flows from God. The challenge that we have as relatively wealthy Westerners is remembering that. And remembering that our anxiety on a global scale doesn't really cut it that much. We're going to be all right. It reminds us of the theological reality that everything that is good comes from God. But I wonder whether our material wealth contributes to a spiritual poverty. Could that be so? 
There's a certain irony in finding that having, say, more money makes you more anxious about the future, not less anxious. How could that work? Well, having more money might make you more anxious that you might lose it, or that you might not have enough. After all, that what you have squirreled away for all your life might suddenly prove to be inadequate when the chips are down. What about when I get to 65, or the way it's going for me, probably 75? What happens when I retire? Will there be enough there? Will I be able to live? Oh my goodness, I've got to be so careful. I've got to be so... And of course, wisdom from God means squirreling away all your money. Actually, it doesn't. It means fear God. Wisdom is fear the Lord. Perhaps we should ask the question, what does it mean to fear God with our finances? Now, I don't ever want to be in a place of preaching a sermon that denounces savings or pensions. That would be ridiculous. That would be really, really foolish. But I do think it's appropriate to preach sermons that ask questions like, isn't it a touch inconsistent to pray anxiously for God's provision when you're sitting on a fairly healthy balance in your savings account? Why isn't the money in your savings account appropriate to use for emergencies tomorrow? Or don't we believe that God will provide for all of our tomorrows, for as many tomorrows as there are, and for as long as they will come? The point is, for us, this prayer about daily bread means food and sustenance, but it means trusting in a good father to give us what we need for your tomorrows, for as long as they come. And that might mean that he's already given you what you need for tomorrow, for the emergency. And anxiety about savings and pensions might be exactly that, anxiety. And it might be blasphemous and idolatrous. And you might need to repent And you might need to say, I don't trust my bank account. I trust in a God who has promised to give me what I need tomorrow. So there's no denunciation of savings, but there is a denunciation of idols. There's no ragging on people who are are looking to have a pension, but there is, don't trust your pension. Don't be a fool. It's foolish, Jesus says. Storing up wealth and going, oh, how wonderful. How do you know? Tomorrow God might require your soul from you and then what will your money do? Now I want to point out to you that it's impossible. It's impossible for you to break out of the hold that money has as an idolatrous power over our lives. It's impossible. You can't do it. You cannot do it. But Jesus can do it. Jesus can deliver you from the anxiety, the fear, the idolatry. Jesus can deliver you from all the junk that goes along with it. Jesus can deliver you from greed and suspicion and selfishness and lack of generosity. Jesus can deliver you from a poverty spirit that can't see the goodness of God in anything and has to constantly grasp and seize and self-secure. You can't do that. You are powerless to deliver yourself from the grip of mammon, idolatrous clinging to wealth, even when it is baptized and sanctified in all manner of Christian kind of language. Oh, hello, kids. 
Come and join the party. <laughs> I'm just about to preach your socks off. What was it, Paul? Like a rocking sermon or something? Fantastic. You can't do it. But what you can do is believe the gospel. You can't free yourself, but you can believe Jesus. You can't improve yourself in that kind of way, but you can believe the gospel. Here's one way that scripture articulates the gospel. He who did not withhold his own son, that's God, talking about, it's about Jesus, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? There's heart work and head work involved in believing the gospel. Here's the head work. This is the logical piece. For those of you who are kind of computers on legs, this is, this is good, okay? You'll get this. Do the head work. Right, God gave the biggest, best, richest, most glorious thing that he had at his disposal, his son. He gave his son. That's the best thing. There's nothing else bigger, better, brighter, richer, bolder, more glorious, more satisfying, more wonderful. He gave you that. He's given that to you. It's like he took all of your Christmas presents when you were a kid and took the big one that you wait till last for and wrapped them all up together into one massive present and gave it all to you first. Here you go. He gave his son. Now, do the math. If God didn't withhold that... But he gave that to you when you were an enemy of his. You weren't just like a kind of morally, oh, ambiguous, I'm all right, Westerner. You were an enemy of God. And he gave you his son. He not only gave you, he gave him up for us all to death, to bleed, to atone, to forgive, to open the door for communion with him. He gave his son. So how then will he not also give you everything else with him? There's the logic. The best, brightest, biggest thing. Tick. Of course, everything else. Why wouldn't he? You see, God isn't holding out on you. He's not, he's not your dad times a million. He's not some kind of hard nut who, think, who makes you kind of work for everything who makes you crawl across glass, who promises and then doesn't deliver. He's given the greatest thing, and he will not hold out on you. He will give you everything else along with him. So that's the head work. Think it through. Think it through. Reason it through. But then there's the heart work, because I know what happens. You go, yeah, I know that. I know that. I, 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 I get that. But you've got to do the heart work then. It's the head work and then the heart work. Okay, what's the heart work? You're so precious to me then. You're, you're, my affections, I need to steer them then in that direction. I, I, wow, I love you, Lord. 
Oh God, you haven't kept your son back. You've promised to meet my needs every day, to, be, to give everything to me. So why would I not pour out my life in praise and trust and a gathering army? Whether or not you would call yourself a Christian, this is a really important part of what it means to believe the gospel. Head, he's given everything for me, so of course he won't hold back, he won't withhold anything. Heart, I love him, I trust him, I delight in him, I worship him. If you do think of yourself as a Christian, please don't think that the gospel is simply the means of getting in. It's also the means by which you go on. It's not the, the starting line, and then that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm in now, and that's, that's that. No the, the, no, the gospel is what you live by every day. Otherwise, the gospel helps you to be more self-righteous, and that's a complete contradiction, isn't it? It's all the gospel from beginning to end, essentially. Give us this day our daily bread or give us today our bread for tomorrow. We started with two ways of interpreting the request. The big picture, okay? Looking for the whole, looking for the coming of the kingdom, fullness, all people to be brought into the party. And then secondly, the heart cry of need that trusts in a good father to provide for all our tomorrows. And we've also now looked at the gospel as the means by which we can move from anxiety and idolatry into trust and confidence and worship. And so it's appropriate... (laughs) This is so hard. Do you know what's even harder? It's not that I can hear them. It's because you're all looking over there. It's like, okay. Awesome. (laughs) Two weeks running. We're going to share communion now. We're going to share communion. Shh. We're going to share communion now. And it's really appropriate. Because as we eat this bread in remembrance of Jesus, we receive in our hearts the true bread of heaven who is Jesus. And as we eat this bread, we know and we trust that tomorrow he will be our bread for us. Tomorrow he will sustain us. As we eat with a sense of anxiety over material needs, we eat material stuff with our material lips and tongues and teeth. And we trust that tomorrow he will provide for us. But I want you to do two things as you come to the table. I don't want you to just come and eat and drink and that be it. Before you come, I want you to repent. Yes, everybody. I want you to repent of your idolatrous trust in money, if you've got it, or your idolatrous hope in money, if you are trying to get it at the expense of anything else. Repent. Say in your heart, God, I repent, I turn. I've put too much store in my bank balance, my savings, or I've put too much hope in getting more. You will provide for all of my tomorrows, for as many tomorrows as may come. That's what daily bread means. And then believe him. Believe him in your heart. God, with my affections, I worship you. I give myself to you. I believe that you are enough for me. 
but you are the bread of heaven that has come down to nourish and sustain the world and me and all peoples. Believe and receive. So let's come up, let's eat and drink, let's do these things, let's trust him, and let's be a people marked and shaped more and more by this prayer as we do so. Amen.